We continue our study in the book of Jeremiah as we go from verses 23 to 27. The prophecy against Damascus. Verse 23, against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea, and it cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is it? Why is the city of praise not deserted? The city of my joy. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus and it shall consume the palaces of Ben Hadad. Jeremiah continues his message to the nations. The attention now focuses on Damascus, which is to the north. Damascus is a word that means alert, and there were three major caravan routes from this particular city that would go from the north and the east and the west and all the way through to the south. The city is very, very old. Some scholars speculate between the two oldest cities that we believe have been continuously inhabited. It's sort of a tie between Jericho in the south and Damascus in the north. It's first mentioned in the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. You'll remember when Lot is taken captive by a coalition army to the north and they seize him and they kidnap him and Abraham will mount an expedition and basically rout the combined armies, bring back his nephew Lot, and he will be met by the prince. Of Salem, who's called Melchizedek or Melchizedek. And Abraham blesses him, basically, and, and Melchizedek offers him bread and wine. We also know later in history that David will seize Damascus, but the city will obtain its freedom during the time of Solomon, and of course, it will play an important part in. The New Testament in the book of Acts, this is the place where Saul is headed to arrest Christians only to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. Damascus isn't listed in the nations that drink from the cup of wrath that's listed in Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 18 through 26. It would appear that when this prophecy begins to unfold in the book of Jeremiah, remember, it's already many years after the book of Isaiah. But as far as we can tell, there is no record in history of Damascus ever being fully destroyed. Now, when it says Hamath and Arpad are shamed, Hamath was a city on the Orontes River, which was located on the northern boundary. Um, I, I don't know if we have a map up there, James, but if you look to the north and you see the kingdom of, it says Aram and Damascus, that's the area that is being talked about. And as you continue to go north, if you will, 
at the northern border, there is a, a river that flows. It's called the Orontes. And as you continue to go north, you go up into modern day Turkey. And so Hamath was a city on the Orontes River that marked the northern boundary of Solomon's kingdom. And Arpad was 105 miles south and west of what's called modern Aleppo in the modern state of Damascus. Right at this very moment, Damascus is the second largest city in Syria. Aleppo is the largest city. Now, both of these cities were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 B.C., Warren Wiersbe writes, the prophet Isaiah condemned Damascus, the capital of Syria, in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. Amos accused the Syrians of treating the people of Gilead like grain on the threshing floor in Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. God would judge them for their inhumanity and brutality to his people. So the judgment is coming on the Syrians or those people From Damascus. Now, the Bible teaches that Damascus will one day be completely destroyed, left desolate, crushed, not fit for human habitation. If you have a Bible, you might want to just turn back very briefly to Isaiah. And Isaiah is easy to find because it's the book right before Jeremiah. In Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1, it says, The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aror are forsaken. They will be for flocks which will lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, the remnant from Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord. And in verse four, it says in that day. In that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. Isaiah predicts that Damascus at some point in human history will cease from being a city. He describes it as a ruinous heap. That means not fit for human habitation. And by the way, Though it was conquered in 605 by Nebuchadnezzar, that prophecy has never been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, if we look carefully, Damascus ceases to be a city in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. The cities of Aurora are forsaken in, in verse 2. The fortresses of Ephraim and the kingdom of Damascus cease to be in verse 3. The Syrian remnant becomes subservient to the glory of the children of Israel in verse 3. And so again, I'm going to suggest to you that this has never happened. The prophecy has never been fulfilled. The Bible warns that at some point, this city will be completely destroyed. Damascus looms under the threat of extinction at any moment. The Bible warns it will be a desperate time whenever this takes place for Israel in chapter 17, verse four. In that day, in that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will begin to wane and the fatness of his flesh grows lean. When Nebuchadnezzar took over, 
the glory of Jacob wasn't just beginning to wane. It was almost fully over with. So what day is he talking about? Does this take place at a time that's referred by Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's sorrow or the time of Jacob's trouble? Does this take place before Damascus is destroyed or after Damascus is destroyed? And the reason why all of this becomes so very, very important is because you may not know this, but Damascus itself doesn't even experience some sort of liberation from French subjugation until after 1917. The passage in Isaiah is interesting because the modern nation states that we understand it have only fully come into being and Syria has received its own independence in 1947. We sometimes think of the of the uh, the establishment of Israel as an independent state in 1948 as being a prophetic mile marker. And that is true. But it's also a prophetic mile marker that Syria is established as an independent state as well in 1947. The passage in Isaiah 17:7 is interesting because it would appear that a faithful few in Israel turn back to God and God's word. They discover that Jesus is the Messiah. In Isaiah 17, 7, it says, At that day shall a man look to his maker and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One. I think that that means that people are looking to the Messiah and respect to their maker. Read Jesus of Nazareth. The passage provides another clue why Jacob's sorrow is called the time of sorrow. In in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 10, it says, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and you have not been mindful of the rock of your strength. The implication being that Israel has not embraced Jesus as the Messiah, has refused to accept Jesus as the rock. And that's exactly The circumstance right at this very moment with Israel and with Syria, both countries at odds with one another. If they have anything in common, it's an opposition to the God of the Bible. And I want you to think about this for just a moment, because Syria's circumstance is very, very interesting. In Syria, do you realize that only about 35 million people live there and the vast concentrations of the population are in Damascus? And Aleppo, the north western border of the modern state of Israel is Syria. In 1967, in the Golan, there is this valley where if, if, I, if you could picture in your mind the Sea of Galilee and it's shaped like a harp and then there's the Jordan River and there's the Dead Sea. If you go to the Sea of Galilee and you hang a right, which is east, you are in Syria. As you look in the Golan, the Syrians used to overlook the valley of the Galilee and they could lob missiles and and grenades and shoot the inhabitants of the northern part of the Galilee. And so in 1967, the Israeli armies pushed to the top of the mountain, if you will, the top of the plain. They captured the Golan Heights so that Syria couldn't stage an ambush from the north. To this day, they've established that particular foothold. 
Today, 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 the president of Iran referred to Israel as occupiers with no historical roots in the Middle East. I mean, how far do you have to go back before you have historical roots? Abraham, 4,000 years. David and Solomon, 3,000 years. Jesus, 2,000 years. And by the way, there's been a continual settlement in Israel up until this time. And now I want you to think about this. Syria and Iran promote and provide sanctuary for terrorist organizations to the north. Hezbollah, they station and then fund them in southern Lebanon. Syria hates Israel. They have participated in every Arab war against Israel. They have publicly called for the destruction of Israel. So here's my... Fairly simple question to you. Does Syria pose a threat to Israel? It's a pretty simple question. And the answer is yes. Now, some people might argue, well, they don't pose a threat right now because they're in the midst of a civil war themselves. As a matter of fact, Reuters, the news agency, reported on, uh, this is last week, United Nations investigators said on Monday that they had expanded a secret list of Syrian and military units suspected of committing war crimes during the 18-month-old conflict between President al-Assad, Bashir al-Assad, he's the president of Syria, and his opponents, the human rights investigators led by Paolo Pinheiro said that they had gathered, quote, a formidable and extraordinary body of evidence and urged the U.N. Secretary and Security Council to refer the situation to in Syria to the International Criminal Court, which they did today. Britain and France said the time had come for Syria to be referred to the Hague-based UN War Crimes Court, but diplomats noted this would require acceptance by veto-wielding Russia and China, which have blocked all the efforts to condemn Syria. Quote, this is Reuters, gross human rights violations have grown in number and pace and scale. Pinheiro said that the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva that there's no statute of limitations on these crimes. More than 20,000 people have been killed in the 18-month-old conflict. 20,000 are all that they can confirm. That, those are confirmable. But most observers believe that the number is between 40 and 50,000 people. Now, again, I need you to understand the magnitude of what's happening in a nation state that has 35 million people. Let me just put it in perspective for you. How many of you have ever been to California? Many of you. How many of you know how many people live in California? How many? 38 million. Imagine just with 3 million people less, a country with 35 million. Imagine if you discovered that 50,000 Californians died in the last 18 months. Do you think that that would, would that shock you? Would that surprise you? Would that agitate you? Would you begin to, un to understand that something's terribly, woefully, horribly wrong? The, see, this is what's happening. Food, and this again, Reuters, food, water, medical supplies have run short in areas subjected to Syrian government airstrikes, shelling, and siege. Our own Secretary of State has condemned Russia because they've sent helicopters to the northern part of Syria to rain weaponry on their own citizens. 
Pinheiro added strikes, shelling, siege. He added investigators have received numerous accounts of civilians barely managing to survive. A hundred and fifty thousand people have fled north into Turkey. Another hundred thousand people have made their way into Iran. Now, read verse 24. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee. And fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. In the ancient world, when the Babylonians would come and invade Damascus and cripple it and subdue it. But again, I'm going to suggest to you that there is an ancient prophecy that came true. But that there's a future prophecy that still awaits Damascus. The prophet Jeremiah describes Damascus as the judgment approaches. Here's the idea. The prophet's describing the army of Babylon approaching. They become weak, troubled like the restless sea, shaky like a patient, sick from head to toe. It's as if a woman, her water breaks, she grabs her belly and she goes, I'm having the baby. That's what this is like. And by the way, if you are a lady and you've ever been in labor, you understand that everything else becomes totally unimportant. There's only one thing on your mind, and that's the baby at hand. And so during this time, Damascus wilts under the threat. And then the Lord says, why is the city of praise not deserted? The city of my joy. Now, again, the Hebrew expression is the city of renown because Damascus, again, was noted as the oasis of trade. This was one of those incredible places that was known for civilization and for art and culture and everything imaginable. And so when the Lord says, why is the city of praise not deserted? I'm going to suggest to you it's because of the warning that Jeremiah is, is giving and saying, look, what, what are you still doing there? What are you still doing there? How is it possible that you feel like you can remain under the circumstances when I've made it clear that Damascus is sitting under the cloud of judgment? And when you read Isaiah chapter 17 and you read Jeremiah chapter 49 and you understand that the Bible has an unfulfilled scripture, and that is that Damascus will one day cease to exist. Doesn't that make you want to move if you live in Damascus? It would kind of make me want to move. If if you read in the Bible, Littleton will one day cease to exist because it's under the threat of God's judgment for its for its crimes against Israel and its crimes against humanity. And then the Lord makes it abundantly clear. And oh, oh, by the way, this could take place at any moment. I know what some of you think. Well, I'd move to Aurora. 
And this is exactly what's happening in verse 26. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. People abandon the ancient city. They're trying to make the escape. Here's Jeremiah. He's painting a picture from the Lord. And the picture is of, of literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people who are trampling one another as they're desperately trying to run for their lives and that's the picture. You, you, you get a tiny picture of it. If you've ever seen the images of 9-11 when the planes crashed into the building and the streets are filled with people and you see the smoke and the, and the dust and the rubble and you see literally hundreds of people as they're making a run, as they're trying to get away from the Holocaust. And that's part of the point. The young men are killed. The fortresses are burned to the ground. In verse 27, it says, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. The ancient city of Damascus was a walled city. It was a reinforced fortress and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the dynastic rulers of the nation state of Damascus and Syria. So what happened in the wall of Damascus? What happened in the palaces of Ben-Hadad? Here's part of the point that I think the writer Jeremiah is giving as he's talking about the Lord. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus. I will consume the palaces because it's these walls that provided the fortress. And it was the palaces of Ben Haddad where they plotted the extermination of the Jews. So what are the walls of Damascus and the palaces of Damascus or the government offices of Damascus have in common with this ancient book that you're reading right at this very moment? In 700 in the seventh century B.C., the people of Damascus and the government officials of Damascus plotted the extermination of the Jews. Now it's 2012. What are they doing now? Plotting the extermination of the Jews. Now, do you see the amazing connection? You would think, hey, imagine if you could go back in time and space and go, hey, what do you think people were doing in Littleton in the 7th century B.C.? I know what you're thinking. They were, they were fishing the Platte River and they were hunting bison. And what were people doing in Damascus in 7th century B.C.? Why, they're plotting to kill the Jews. And what are they doing now? Mm, Plotting to kill the Jews. That's a long time to hold a grudge. This is the place where evil was plotted. And so the Lord is saying, um... There's going to be judgment. Now, the message is brief, but powerful. The message is brief, but powerful. I know we hear you, Lord. What is part of the point? What else do people need to hear to understand that God's wrath is about to fall? Yeah, more thunder. Let me just share a couple of scriptures with you before we move on. 
Remember, I've told you that God is the God of the past and the present and the future. And I don't need to convince most of you that the prophecies of God must be fulfilled. But just for your own edification, let me give you a couple of things to think about as people wonder, well, you know, really, is this all going to really happen? Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. For I am God and there is no other for I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Isaiah 46 9 says, I'm the God of the past. I'm the God of the present. I'm the God of the future. I am the only God who can speak about the future as if it is the past. Isaiah 34, 16, search, search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these prophecies shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate for my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered it. I, I dare you to find one single prophecy that won't be fulfilled. I dare you to try to uncover one single promise of God that has failed. Isaiah 46, 11 and 12. Indeed, I, this is God, have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteous. Zephaniah chapter two, verses two and three. Before the decree is issued, before day passes like chap, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord. All the meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. The Lord invites us. The Lord invites us to be meek and to uphold justice and seek righteousness and declare humility. Why do so many people choose to ignore the Bible's prophecies about the future? Why do they ignore the reality of what God has said? That there is going to be a major unfolding that takes place in the future. How can they just simply ignore the repeated warnings that are given in the Bible? And I think it comes down to, to a couple possibilities. Let me just throw out to you why I think. That people have ignored the prophecies in the Bible. I think it boils down to the possibility of unbelief. It boils down to the possibility of ignorance. It boils down to the possibility of fear. It boils down to the possibility of carnality. But whether it is unbelief or ignorance or fear or carnality. Whatever is keeping people from saying, wait a minute. The prophecies of God are true. What God has said is going to happen to Israel will happen. What God has said will happen to Damascus will happen. What God has in store for the people in the north and the people in the east and the people in the south, it will happen. You know, it's interesting to me how many people ask me, what does the Bible have to say about what will happen to America? I mean, the Bible talks about Egypt and it talks about Ammon and it talks about Moab and it talks about Edom. It talks about Syria to the north. It talks about Babylon to the east. But what about us? 
And America is strangely absent from the testimony in the scripture. Why? One of two reasons. It's not there. Or it doesn't matter. That should be frightening to you. The reason why it's not addressed is because we're not there. Or because we don't matter. Thank you for that. Amen. Why should we even care about prophecy? One third of the Bible is devoted to prophecy. Do you realize that one out of every three verses in the Bible has something to do about a prediction of Jesus's coming or Jesus's life or Jesus's ministry or Jesus's death or Jesus's resurrection or Jesus's second coming? One out of every three. It's one of the marks of the authenticity of this book. It points to the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And why will Jesus come back? Because he said he would. Because he deserves honor and power and praise and glory. Because the return of Jesus spells the defeat of Satan and refreshment for the earth and peace for the nations and the restoration of Israel. And in the end... Jesus enthroned as Lord and King. The Bible teaches that at the end of the days, the remnant of Israel will gather in the land. The Bible teaches that at the end of days, there's going to come a moment of unparalleled disaster. And in that crucible of pain, And deep affliction. Israel will cry out for her Messiah. I think you know. That I believe with all my heart. That God has unfinished business with the Jewish people. If you don't believe me. Then believe Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 through 20. Reread Isaiah chapter 60 and 61 and 62. And hold your breath. And read Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11 as you see what God has in store for the Jewish people. But it also means blessings for the church because guess what? Each and every one of us are going to receive glorified bodies. We're going to return to a redeemed earth. We're going to rule over the nations. We are going to be reunited with the people that we love. This is why prophecy is so important. There's another message. It's to Kedar and Hatsor. These are the Arab tribes. Look at verses 28 through 33. Look what it says against Kedar and against the kingdoms of Hatsor, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, shall strike. Thus says the Lord, arise, go up to Kedar and devastate the men of the east, their tents And their flocks they shall take away. They shall take for themselves their curtains, all their vessels and their camels. And they shall cry out to them. Fear is on every side. Flee. Get far away. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hatsor, says the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you. He's conceived a plan against you. Do you understand what you're reading? The Lord is saying, 
I've read the king of Babylon's mind. I know what he's thinking. I've peered into his heart and his soul. I have seen the dark recesses of his brain. And I know what the plans that he has for you. Look what it says, 31. Arise, go to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars dwelling alone. Their camels shall be for booty and the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners and I will bring their calamity from its size, says the Lord. Hatsur shall be a dwelling place for jackals. I'm not making this up. Read it yourself. A desolation forever. No one shall reside there. Nor son of man shall dwell there. Do you know what the prophecy for Syria and the, the prophecy of Hatsor and Kedar have in common? The message is in advance so that they will flee for their lives and they'll come to a place of safety. This is important for you to understand. If you don't remember anything else that I've said about this Bible study, understand that for a moment before I explain to you who these people are. Who are these people? These are the desert people. Kedar was related to Ishmael in Genesis chapter 25, verse 13. We aren't sure of the origin of Hatsor, but this isn't the famous Hatsor in the plains of northern Jezreel that's found in Joshua chapter 11. These are the desert areas that are located east of Judah. And James, if you could put the, the map back up. And you see the kingdom of Edom. You see the, the, the Nabo tribes and you see the Armenian tribes that's, and you see this, this great vast stretch past Ammon and Moab, which is modern parts of Syria, parts of Jordan. And, and, and you see the, the tribal peoples all around. I'm going to suggest to you that whoever these people are. It's east of Judah, and it seems the most likely candidates are the Arab tribes. Hatsor is a word that means enclosure. So there's two kinds of people who are being talked about who live east. There are people who live in cities and those who live in tents. Now, there are Bedouins that are located throughout that area. And again, the name, I think, is a contrast between two people groups, people who live in cities and people who dwell in tents. And so whoever these people are, they appear to be nomadic peoples who lived by raising sheep and camels in the desert. By the way, in the 7th century BC, were there people who lived in tents and dwelt with camels and goats in the 7th century BC? What do you think the answer is? It's now 2012. Are there people who live in tents who dwell with camels and goats on the, the east side and the west side of the Jordan River? Scott, you know, because you've seen them with your own eyes. Oh, there's the tents. These are the tents. Those are the tents. These are the nomadic people who live by raising sheep and camels. And when the invading armies of Nebuchadnezzar came in 599 and 598, they lost Everything The armies consumed them. Verse 29, their tents and their flocks they shall take away. They shall take for themselves their curtains. These are the curtains that they live in. The tents, all their vessels and their camels. They shall cry out to them, fear is on every side. Once again, we see that phrase. 
fear is on every side. What does that mean? It means there's danger to the north. There's danger to the south. There's danger to the east. There's danger to the west. Verse 30, flee, get far away. Dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hatzor, says the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you, has conceived a plan. Now, this reminds me of another passage of scripture that you may be familiar with. The language is exactly the same. In Ezekiel, chapter 38, verses 10 and 11, turn there. In Ezekiel chapter 38, now if you don't know where Ezekiel is, Isaiah is first, Jeremiah is second, and then Ezekiel is third. So if you're in Jeremiah right now at at chapter 49, take a right. If you're in Lamentations, you haven't gone far enough, keep going and you're going to get to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 10, look what it says. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, sound familiar? On that day. What day? Judgment day. What judgment? There's a judgment from Babylon. There's a future judgment that will take place. And there's a future, future judgment that will take place. But look what it says. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that the thoughts will arise in your mind. And you will make an evil plan. You will say, hmm... I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them looking, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. That means unprotected. To take plunder and to take booty. To stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars dwelling alone. Who is the wealthy nation that's dwelling securely? In Ezekiel 38. I think it's Israel. In this, the nomadic peoples, they are, I'm going to suggest to you, Arab nations. Who is the wealthy nation that dwells securely? Israel. Whatever else this passage is is saying concerning Hatzor and these other people, these are nations that are living a life of ease and luxury, isolating themselves from others, manifesting pride, a sense of arrogance and self-confidence. And you know who that sounds like to me? It sounds like Saudi Arabia. It sounds like Dubai. It sounds like Yemen. It sounds like all of the people dwelling on the Saudi Arabian peninsula. Their camels shall be for booty, the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners, and I will bring their calamity from all sides, says the Lord. Hot sore shall be a dwelling place for jackals, a desolation forever. No one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. Part of the problem? Nebuchadnezzar does invade these eastern cities, but people continue to dwell there. But apparently there's a future confrontation that is of such 
incredible magnitude that it renders the place uninhabitable. What do you suppose it would take for one nuclear device to be detonated over Damascus? By the way, I'm not suggesting that this is a good idea, nor do I think, do I hope that this happens. But I want to ask you a question. If a nuclear device did detonate in Damascus, what would the surrounding nations do? Would it escalate into a third world war? Or would it create such a profound sense of fear and trembling that there would be an outrageous cry and a desire for peace in the Middle East? What if I suggested to you that the next great war that will probably take place in the Middle East won't be Ezekiel 38 and 39 and won't necessarily be Armageddon, but that there is a limited war that still has yet to take place because there's unfinished prophecies that have to happen for the people who are dwelling east of the Dead Sea and north to Syria. And Israel has to come to a place where there is at least a semi sense of security and stability. I'm going to suggest to you that this is what I see happening in the future. Not Israel contracting, but Israel expanding. That there's going to be a time of security and peace that will eventually come. That there is going to be a time of danger and war and conflict, but that another time of danger and war and conflict is going to be resolved by a future king who the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. We're given a picture of a group of people who don't need God, who don't need God's help. Now, here's part of the point of this particular prophecy that is taking place as Jeremiah is giving the prophecy and he's speaking to these desert dwellers and he's saying, run for your lives. The king of Babylon is coming and he's going to swallow you up. And the right response should be, let us run for our lives because the prophet of God has spoken about what the future holds, but they won't run for their lives. Because they don't think that they need God and they don't think that they need God's help. And part of the point of the passage is the foolishness of their response. And then look at the Lord's message to Elam. Look at verse 34. It says that the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah against the prophet to Jeremiah, the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their of their might. So who are the Elamites? Well, you can't necessarily see it on the map. But if you see where it says Aramean tribes and you go east there, this is the place of ancient Babylon. This is the these people were a Semitic people. They were the neighbors of the Babylonians. They're briefly mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 25, 25, Ezekiel 32, 24, Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. They're 
Country boundaries were located beyond the Tigris River, across from Babylon, and it was eventually absorbed into Babylon, and then it was absorbed into what's called the Medo-Persian Empire. God apparently gave this prophecy about 597 BC during the reign of Zedekiah. The capital of Elam, you, you might be somewhat familiar with because it's spoken of in the book of Daniel. It was called the Citadel or it was called Susa, S-U-S-A. The reason why this is such an important historical place is because this was the residence of Darius. It would become the center of the Persian Empire. You'll remember, and we're going to find this out later, that Babylon will give way to the Medes and the Persians. This is, again, a part of the prophecy of Daniel as he speaks of the unfolding of Gentile history as it goes from Babylon to Persia to the Greeks to the Romans and the coming of the Messiah. All of this becomes very, very important. So the Elamites were skilled archers. They were the deadly sharpshooters of the ancient world. As a matter of fact, I have one coin from this era. It is a coin that's about half the size of a dime. On it is a man wearing a crown with a beard with a bow. They were archers. And so it says, I'm going to break the bow of Elam. Why is this important? Because remember, they look to their military might and their technical achievements as being the source of their power and their invincibility. In other words, they had built a military machine that was invincible. But God said, I'm going to break the bow. It's the, the Bible's way of saying, whatever you think your military might, might, might be, I'm going to break it. And so that's the idea. And then in verse 36, it says against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and I will scatter them toward all of those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. Here's the war that's envisioned. By the way, the Babylonians will come and the Elamites will run for their lives. As a matter of fact, we will even see Elamites as late as. Acts chapter two, when the people come from the four corners of the empire and they gather during the feast of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out on people groups from from the four corners. And Acts chapter two mentions this particular people group. So the Lord describes the Babylonian armies. Here's the picture. The military campaign, the army blows in from every single direction and then scatters them to the winds. And there's no nation where the outcasts don't go north, south, east, west. Verse 37, for I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. By the way, the Persian would grow to be the most dominant empire in the history of humanity that will stretch from the Mediterranean Ocean all the way to the shores east of Korea. There's only one empire that will grow larger and greater 
and consume more physical territory. And that's the Mongols who are yet to come onto the historical scene. So the Lord says, I'm going to send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Has the Persian army ever been completely broken? No. And then look what it says in verse 38. I will set my throne in Elam and I will destroy from there the king and the princess, says the Lord. What does that mean? I will set my throne in Elam. In the ancient world, when a king would conquer a territory, the king would take his throne, that is, the symbol of his right to rule and sovereignty, and he sets it in the defeated nation. It would be like if Britain in 1812 was able to not only burn our capital, Washington, D.C., but then it sets the king of Britain's throne in the government hall of our White House. They build a new White House and they put the king's throne in there to signify their right to rule and occupy the country. When the Lord says, I will set my throne in Elam, I'm going to suggest to you. That God is promising an outpouring of his Holy Spirit on the people who live in the Middle East because he's going to establish himself as king of kings and lord of lords. And this becomes an important, important point for each and every one of us because we can't just simply continue to see all of the people in the Middle East as our perennial enemies, but remind us that there are men and women there who know and love the Lord. There are ten thousand house churches in Iran and Syria and Lebanon. There are Christian congregations that are spreading throughout the Middle East because God has a plan and a purpose because he wants to see these people saved. The Lord's going to set up his throne. And this is true. This is what God promises to do in Elam. This is God's way of saying I'm going to send you a message, an unmistakable message that you will understand. And the unmistakable message is, I am the true and the living God who occupies eternity. And look what it says in verse 39. But it shall come to pass in the latter days. When is this all happening? Look what it says in the latter days. What days are these? Is this the days before the tribulation? Is this the days during the tribulation? Is this the days that are leading right up to the very end of human history? I'm going to suggest to you that whenever these days are, it is the days that are leading up right to the very end, right up until the final curtain, right when the, the stage is being set for the final dramatic termination of human history. And then he says, I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. Now, I want you to think about this. Once again, there's a promise of peace. There's a promise of mercy. There's a promise of restoration. When is this peace and mercy and restoration going to take place? It might be taking place in part now. But it will take place fully and finally, I think, during Messiah's reign. Interesting. 
like I said, Elam is mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, among the people who are saved. And so why does God choose to restore Egypt and Moab and Elam? What is it about those countries that God says, I'm going to restore you, but the other ones I'm going to annihilate, obliterate, decimate, where it will become an uninhabitable wasteland? What if I suggested to you that however else it seems to be unfolding, there are two kinds of nations. Those that will share in God's kingdom. Those that will share in God's grace. But those that won't share in God's kingdom. And they refuse to share in God's grace. And by now you know the message of Jeremiah. Judgment is coming. He's predicted it for Jerusalem and Judah. He's predicted it for the surrounding nations. But there's a problem that we face. We can be deceived and hardened in our own hearts because we've heard the message. We've heard the message so many times. We can sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that this message was for a long ago time and for a long ago people. But I need you to understand something that when Jeremiah gave these messages, these are real countries populated by real people with a real message of judgment. Again, Wearsby writes, he says, quote, Whole civilizations were wiped out because of their sins. And eventually Babylon itself was destroyed. This means that multitudes of people died and went into an eternity of darkness. God sees what the nations do and he rewards them justly. What King Hezekiah said about the Lord needs to be emphasized today. O Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over the kingdoms of the earth. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16. Joshua called him the Lord of all the earth. And both Jesus and Paul called him Lord of heaven and earth. Wearsby reminds the reader that God didn't give the Bible, the law, the prophecies to these nations. But he still held them accountable for their sins. He still held them accountable for the atrocities committed against the Jewish people. And against their own people. And against all of humanity. Because the witness of creation and conscience... They were without excuse. And so the behavior of the nations, have they really changed? Some people might argue, well, these people don't have a Bible. The reality is they have a message. They have a warning. And for whatever reason, they will. Ignore the warning. What will happen when the judge of the whole earth decides to avenge the innocent and act according to his own nature? You know what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the true and the living God. Today, today, this very day, 
Yom Kippur. The head of the United Nations was quoted in the news saying, quote, political turmoil, extreme climactic conditions and fragile economies are combining to create a perfect storm of vulnerability. The world is in trouble. I think of what Caiaphas said. Isn't it better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish? The Bible says that he didn't even know it. But he was speaking a prophecy by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that the United Nations director even understands it. But he was speaking a word of warning to a watching world. Chapter 50. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are beginning to understand (laughs) that when you speak, it behooves us to listen. And will not the God of the entire planet do what's right? Lord, you've indicated that you're going to do right, what's right towards each and every human being. That you, Lord, you give each and every one of us a, a wonderful opportunity to turn from our sin and to turn to our Savior. Lord, you've entrusted with each and every nation a challenge and a charge to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk in humility with God. Lord, our leaders owe it to themselves and to the nations that they serve to consider that they will, in fact, answer to a holy God who occupies eternity. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we as men and women of God would pray for our leaders, pray for the nations. And pray for the people who are risking their lives and their fortunes to reach the lost and to warn them to flee from the judgment that is certainly coming to all the world. In Jesus' name, amen.